hope you're enjoying the summer and you've had the opportunity to have a bit of a break. Um, if, like me, you've, you've been away, has anyone been away on holiday this year? I know that uh, often it's, it's possible to go away on holiday to places within the UK. Last year we went to uh, the northeast, we went up to Northumberland, had a couple of weeks in a cottage there, and it was really, really nice. But I decided to up the ante this year when it comes to going away on holiday, and I decided I wanted to go somewhere where they speak a completely different language. And it's just something a bit more exotic about being somewhere where you are surrounded by people who are speaking a totally different language to you. And we really wanted to go somewhere like that this year. So we decided to go to North Wales. So we've just come back from a couple of weeks holiday in North Wales. We've been camping in a tent for two weeks and we had an experience. And I don't know if you've ever had this in a country where people actually speak a different language. And it's a little bit weird in, in Wales because um, a certain percentage of the population clearly speak Welsh. But there's a large proportion of those of us, mainly English tourists, who go there who don't actually speak it. And it's quite a weird experience sitting somewhere surrounded by people who are talking a different language to you. And it can be quite disconcerting and a little bit confusing, to be honest, when there's a language barrier. Because you're never quite sure what they mean when they're talking around you. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but sometimes you get the distinct impression when you're sitting there that they might be talking about you... It's a bit of an awkward one, and it can be quite confusing. But to be honest, Welsh is, a, is a, an interesting language because it is so different from the English language. With languages like French, for example, we share quite a few words, and I think that's probably because as the English, we've stolen various words from the French over the centuries. But you can sometimes figure out a little bit about what they're trying to say. But in something like Welsh, where it's so drastically different, it can be really difficult to work out what the actual meaning is. And English, I mean, I don't know if, if you're a person who has learned English as a second language, but English is supposed to be one of the most confusing languages to learn because we have so many different words that mean different things in different contexts. And we have, we have these words that are spelt exactly the same and are pronounced exactly the same, but have completely different meanings. And they're words called homonyms. It's a type of word that sound the same, spelled the same, but have completely different meanings. So for example, if I'm talking about bark, I could be talking about a tree, or I could be talking about a dog. If I hit a nail with a hammer, then I'm either banging it into the wall to hang a picture, or I'm going to A&E for a trip to deal with a squashed finger. If I have a mine, or I talk, use the word mine, then I can either be talking about something that I own, I can be talking about being underground and digging for precious minerals, or I can be talking about something that explodes, which is quite an important distinction to try and work out. I can squash a squash into my soup before going and playing a game of squash while drinking orange squash. English is a weird language, and we're not even the best of it, best at it. There is a language in the world, I'm reliably informed, called the Indonesian Riau dialect. And they have this phrase called I am makam, which literally translates as chicken eat. However, depending on the context, it can also mean the chicken is eating, chickens are eating, a chicken is eating, the chicken will be eating, the chicken eats, the chicken has eaten, someone is eating the chicken, someone is eating with the chicken, the chicken that has eaten, and when the chicken is eating. And that's amazing. Isn't that amazing? Because of the context that it's in, it means something different. But you can see how we end up with some confusion. 
And we get that with English sometimes. We use the same word to mean different things. And I don't know if you've had this experience where sometimes you find something that is lost in translation, when you're having a conversation with somebody where it seems like you were talking about the same thing, but in reality you're talking about completely different things because it's just it's the same words, but what you mean are two different things. And English is such a limited language sometimes. You know, we're talking about enjoy life this morning. But when we use the word life, we can actually be talking about completely different things, depending on what we're thinking of, depending on what we mean. I don't know if we've got anyone in the room who's recently taken GCSE biology, or if you uh, if you can think back to when you did GCSE biology or GCSE science. Um, but there's a definition of life that we're given, which is um, the biological state of life, what it is to be alive, the different characteristics of life. And there was this acronym that we used in GCSE Biology, which was, um, which was Mrs. Gren or Mrs. Nerg, depending on your school of thought. And it was movement, respiration, sensitivity, growth, respiration, excretion, and nutrition, or re reproduction rather than respiration. But this is how we define life. Those are the things that um, make something alive. But the problem with that definition is that by that definition, I am no more alive than the piece of grass that's growing outside or the piece of mould that's growing under my sink, which isn't particularly helpful kind of thought. Or we think about life as a period of time. So it's a moment of my conception right the way through to when I take my last breath. That is my life. Or we think about life as being the general state of human existence. You know, that's life. Or we can talk about it as being a period of existence, not even of something alive, but of something relatively inanimate. So my, if my computer starts slowing down or starts to stop working properly or my car stops working properly, then you have these conversations that go like, yeah, well, pff, you know, you'd expect to get a life of around three years out of this and then it will become obsolete and need replacing. You know, it's life, but it's an inanimate object, but we still talk about it having... A life or life can be a living being so you may see on the news stories like the ship sank and 20 lives were lost you know it's 20 lives but that's a that's a specific living being but it's a life or we think about living things collectively so we have subdivisions we have plant life we have animal life we have supernatural life we have alien life we have all sorts of different subdivisions but we're still using the same word life or we have life drawing, which always seems to have something to do with either fruit or nudity. Nobody really understands why. Or sometimes we subdivide our own life into different lives or different aspects of life. So I have a home life, a work life, a sex life, a social life, a thought life, a prayer life. All of these different aspects of my life that I'm talking about as being an individual life. Or sometimes life can be the most important of those things. So I may work. My work life became so big. I worked so hard that it became my life. And you kind of wonder, what are we, what are we talking about? Sometimes you, you meet somebody who is just so full of life, you know, and then we're talking about passion or exuberance or enthusiasm. You know, they're, they're the life and soul of the party. Or we can, that's even before we get started on digital things. So if we start, you can have a second life, which is an online presence where you are living a different life to your own life. You have a different personality, different characteristics. You can be a completely different person in this second life in an online environment. Or if you're into gaming, sometimes you may be playing a shoot 'em up game, you get killed, but it's okay. I've got a second life or I've got another life. 
what? What are we talking about? Or you may be listening to the news and you hear that somebody's been in court and you hear that they've been given 25 to life. And then you have these weird conversations where you just kind of say, yeah, but life doesn't mean life. But what? Yeah, it's all right. Yeah, it'd be given double life. What are we talking about as human beings? Life. But it's got so many different meanings. So here's a question for you. When we talk about enjoy life, which of these things do you think of? Because chances are it may well be a completely different thing to the person next to you or the person in the row behind you. You know, what do you want out of life? What kind of life do you want? You know, is there more to life than this? And so when we ask those questions, you know, we... We read Bible verses, you know, we read Bible verses like John 14, 6, which says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. Or in John 10, 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Or some, some translations say have it in abundance or in all its fullness. But when Jesus talks about life, what kind of life is he talking about? And that's because English is, is such a, a limited language sometimes. And the Bible wasn't written in English. It was written in a number of different languages, Aramaic, Hebrew, um, and Greek predominantly. But in these parts of the Bible, in, in the Gospel of John, you've got several different words for life because the Greeks had several different words for life. And we borrowed some of those in our own language. So you have, you have bios, the word bios, which is quite simple and straightforward. It's talking about, it's the root word for biology or biological. It's your physical life, your body, your breathing, bleeding, running, jumping sort of life. Or you've got the word suke, not psyche, but suke, but it is the root word of where we get psych or psychic, psychology, psychiatric. It's the mind. It's your thinking, your reasoning, your intellectual sort of life. And then you've got a third word for life, which is one of these words that's been adopted as a name, a little bit like joy or faith are words that have been adopted as a name. But it's this word zoe, which literally translates as life, but a different kind of life, something else, a deeper kind of life, a life of spiritual connection, of depth, of wonder, of relationship with the divine. And see, it's that kind of life that Jesus is talking about. When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, it's the Zoe, something deeper, something spiritual, something deeply connected to God. I have come that they may have life and have it in all its fullness. Life in abundance, life in a way that you did not expect. In some translations, the emphasis is life that surpasses your expectations eternal life this is zoe it's intangible it's spiritual it's deeply connected to god everlasting it's about resources that never run dry eternal that kind of life is the word that is used but when jesus uses that word what is he talking about and what kind of life is that and how do we experience and enjoy it and to answer that question we turn to the Bible and we have to look at the beginning. We're going to go right back to the beginning, the middle 
and the end. Because the Bible is a fascinating book, because actually it's not one book, it's a collection of books, like a library of different books, 66 different books, that were written by lots of different people across hundreds and hundreds of years. And it's been passed down, and it's been edited, and it's been translated, and then retranslated, and re-edited, and bits have been taken out, things have been put back in, and it's been changed from when it was originally written. And yet, in many ways... The Bible contains some stories and some ideas that only really make sense if you look at the whole picture. And even though it's been edited and changed and adapted and translated and all of that sort of stuff, we believe that the Bible is God-breathed and that God still uses it because the Bible says that all scripture is God-breathed. So that God uses it to teach us things about life. But what we find is that a story or a concept can be started in one book but doesn't finish or reconcile itself until much later on in another book of the Bible written centuries later. And this is what we want to talk about this morning, because I believe that in many ways God is using the Bible to teach his people about the kind of life that he wants us to live. Sometimes that's overt, you know, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Jesus said that in the Gospels. Or you've got the Ten Commandments where we get things like do not steal, do not kill, do not murder do not commit adultery. You know, those are the sorts of things that you can really kind of get behind in terms of life messages. But they're also clear commands that this is the kind of life that I want you to live. But see, sometimes it's more subtle than that. And the Bible uses stories. It's a collection of stories more than anything else. And a lot of the time, those stories are being used by God to illustrate where people have got it right or where people have got it wrong. Why does he do that? Because God knows that we relate to experience. You can relate to the experience of another human being far better than you can do a list of rules or a textbook. And so we're going to have a look at some of those examples of how God is telling us what kind of life he wants us to enjoy. So let's start at the very beginning. Back at the origin of life. Genesis 1 verse 1 to 2 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. This is the beginning, the origin of life, where life began. And it started with God's spirit. Creation, developing life in all of its forms, and because it goes on and on and on and we know the story, it talks about let there be, God said, let there be light, let there be waters, let there be skies, let there be earth, let there be trees, let there be plants, let there be fish in the sea, let there be birds in the air, let there be animals that walk across the ground, all stemming from the start point, God's spirit hovering over the waters. Until... We reach a point in the story where God is doing something slightly differently. Genesis 2 verse 7 says this. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. God's breath literally breathed into Adam, breathed into mankind so that his breath being the source of life. The Bible talks about God's breath being the source of life and a physical interaction breathing straight into man's lungs, causing that breath to expand 
and contract. Take in spirit, breathe out spirit. There's a deep spiritual connection as God's breath being the source of life for mankind. What's interesting about this, though, is that this is not the only origin story that starts with people being formed out of the dust of the ground and having life breathed into them. The ancient Romans and the ancient Greeks had a very similar sort of concept where people were formed out of clay and then Zeus or Mars came down and they breathed into Jupiter, it would have been rather than Mars, but there we go, breathed into the people, right? That was their origin story. So this is a story that ancient cultures and, and populations would be familiar with. It starts the same, with the divine interacting with man. But it's where it ends, and the purpose behind it, where it differs drastically. In this story, God forms the people for relationship. For ancient Greeks and Romans, people were playthings for the gods, and they lived in fear of the gods. In this story, this is a god who forms people for relationship, to engage with, to walk in the garden in the cool of the day, to rule over the the world. There is no authority struggle going on here. The only authority struggle that ever exists in the Bible is one that's created by man. The reality is that God created the heavens and the earth and created man to rule over the animals and the plants, and to steward and look after it. That was the original design. That's what life was originally for. But it doesn't go to plan. Man screws up. He desires power more than anything else. He wants his own way. He wants knowledge of good and evil via a shortcut rather than through relationship, and so takes and cuts himself off from God. And that's kind of where the story ends for a little bit and like I say this is like the start of a story that you read and you kind of think mm, all right so where does that go then and we'll come back to that in a little bit but man is separated and cut off from God instead of having a relationship with him he goes into a period of having to work really really hard struggling for life finding it really difficult and bitterness starts to develop in his life and it carries on through the next few chapters It essentially escalates into a life that is clearly not the kind of life that God wants for us. A life of bitterness, a life of hatred, a life of animosity, a life of war. And God gets to the point where he says, do you know what? It's not working. And you get this really weird story, weird from our context, where in Genesis 6, 5 to 7, says, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. That's not the kind of life that God wanted for humanity. So, God does something really radical and quite extreme. The Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I've made them. Right, that's it, scrap it. Bad enough. Which seems like a really weird thing for God to do, and a really weird thing for God to say. But, this is not the only story, because we go on to Noah, and we get a flood that destroys the earth, and Noah is saved. This is not the only story where a flood destroys the earth. Lots of other ancient cultures had a story where the flood destroyed the earth. This is the only story 
where God brings positive things out of it. This is the only story where God brings new life out of tragedy. This is the only story where God brings redemption and forgiveness and grace and mercy out of this tragedy. So the earth is flooded. The animals go in two by two, hurrah. And the rain comes down and the floods come up and a thousand primary school assembly songs are born. And Noah is saved. And this is, the, this is the weird thing about this story, is that this is the only story in ancient cultures that finishes with God doing something like this. In Genesis 21-22, Noah has sacrificed an animal when he's arrived and the floods have gone down. And the Lord smells the pleasing aroma of this sacrifice and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done as long as the earth endures. Never again. This is the only story where God makes that promise. The done thing at the time was to live in fear of the gods. The done thing at the time was to live in fear of a god that would come and destroy you and obliterate you from the map. The done thing at the time was to live with a fear of the divine. God is saying, this is not the kind of life that I want for you. I don't want the kind of life where you're afraid of what I might do to you. I want the kind of life where we can exist in relationship. And in fact, later on in 9-11, it says, I establish my covenant with you. A covenant is an agreement. It's a relationship. You can't have a covenant without a relationship. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. This is God saying, I want a life where you are in relationship with me. That is the kind of life that I've designed for you. Not where you cut yourself off and get kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Not where you kill each other to the point where I have to start again. But where we live in covenant relationship with one another. And so Noah and his family go on to have babies, they populate the earth, and then you get this really bizarre story about a chapter or a couple of chapters later, and we're going to move out of Genesis in a minute. I'm not doing this all the way through the Bible, though. Just bear with me. But there's this really weird story, and I've put this in because I started talking about language, right? And in Genesis 6, no, Genesis 11, you get this story. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. And they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. It's probably a good thing to do with bricks. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they said, come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and confuse the language so they won't be able to understand each other. That's a weird story. Does anyone else, has anyone else really struggled with the Tower of Babel? I struggled with the Tower of Babel for a while because I, I looked at it and just thought, I don't know what you're on about. What? Even just from a literature point of view, why have you put that story in there? Because the only take-home point that I can see is that God wants to disperse people across the earth, which doesn't really make any sense. When you think about it, this is people... Working together for what purpose? To glorify only themselves. To exalt themselves above other people. To lord it over the surrounding nations. To do everything that they possibly can to say, we are the greatest, we are the best. They sought only their own interests, their own fame, their own gratification, their own agenda. 
And it's funny how you think in thousands of years, we haven't really advanced that much as a human race, possibly. But so what God does is says, oh, that's not the kind of life I want for you. But we'll put a pin in it and we'll come back to it later on. Man trying to do things on his own, forgetting God. You see, what God is doing in the Bible, and this happens all the way through the Bible, but we're not going to go through each one in a load of detail, but he is challenging misconceptions that the human race has about him. Challenging misconceptions that the human race has about God, about what it is to live a life with God, to live a life in relationship with God. Because as people, we get these conceptions of what God is like and what life is like and what the purpose of life is. And sometimes that's right, and sometimes it's not. And what the Bible is doing is challenging the misconceptions that we have about life. And it carries on through the Bible. You take the story of Abraham. Abraham was promised by God that he would be the father of a great nation. It doesn't happen in the timescale that he wants it to, so he takes matters into his own hands. What is God saying? I don't want you to live a life where you feel like you have to do things on your own, where you feel like you have to do things your way, where you feel like you have to take matters into your own hands. I want you to live a life that is ascribed to my timescale and my timing. Joseph is sold into into slavery. He's betrayed by his family. He's falsely accused, and he ends up in prison. Why is that story in there? Because God is saying, I don't want a life for you where you are betrayed, abandoned, and sold into slavery. I want a life where you are redeemed by me and restored by me. And you recognize that even though those things may happen to you, that there is still hope, that I am faithful and I am still there for you. Moses spent decades in the Bible living in fear of his past because of the things that he'd done and the fear of what he would go back to. He lived a life feeling inadequate because he wasn't good at public speaking. God chose him anyway. Why did God choose someone who wasn't perfectly suited to the task? Because he wants to say, I don't want a life for you where you live in fear of your inadequacies. I want a life for you where you rely on me for what I can do through you. The people of Israel lived in slavery to a foreign power multiple times over the course of the Bible. And God brings them out of it every single time. Why? Because I don't want a life for you where you live in fear of slavery, where you live in captivity, where you live subject to the rules and regulations of other powers. I want you to live a life that is subject to my rules and my regulations and subject to my grace and mercy. And regardless of how many times you screw up, I will still come and rescue you and bring you out constantly over and over again. David lived in a country afraid to face its giants. That's not the kind of life that God wants for you. David committed adultery and murder that's not the kind of life that God wants for you because God still then used him and brought out of that moment a moment of grace and of exaltation Daniel lived in a in a society where he was afraid of the establishment or the people were afraid of the establishment of the rules and regulations that were put down on top of them if you don't worship in this way you can't live that is not the kind of life that God has for us. Esther lived in fear of genocide. That's not the kind of life that God wants for us. Jonah lived in bitterness and anger at the, at the ruling powers in Nineveh, so that even when God redeemed Nineveh and brought them back into his, into his way of thinking and they all repented, Jonah was so bitter and angry that he just wanted to die. That's not the kind of life that God wanted for us. Job lived in despair and was blaming God for everything that had happened to him. 
That's not the kind of life that God wants for us. Nehemiah lived in a world where the walls had been broken down. The walls of the city had been broken down. They had no security, no way of looking after themselves. That is not the kind of life that God wanted for us. It happens through the Old Testament time and time and time again. And in some of these stories, the people are successful and do the right thing. In some of these stories, they fail and screw up miserably. But God is still God. And God still comes through, and God is still trying to teach us something about what kind of life he wants for us, and what kind of life we can live. And then, we get to the New Testament, just over the midway through the Bible. And in the New Testament, it's like God says, do you know what? I've tried and tried and tried and tried to tell you how to live your life and you've tried and tried and tried and tried to understand and get it right and you're not getting it right and it's, to be honest, it's frustrating both of us. So shall I just show you how it works? And so God steps out of heaven, becomes a baby, enters life at its most fragile point and lives a life that demonstrates what life should be like. A life where the sick are healed, where the dead are raised, where prisoners are freed from captivity, where strongholds and spiritual powers don't control people anymore, and where even when Jesus is betrayed, is falsely accused, is tried, is abandoned by his friends, and and dies a death on the cross, he still doesn't lose hope, and God still doesn't abandon him, but brings new life out of the process. He is the way, the truth, and the life. A spiritual, deep connection with the Father, a relationship with the Father that epitomizes all of those things that are being spoken through the Bible all the way through. Adam saw the apple and saw equality with God. What well, the snake says to Adam in the garden, or says to Eve in the Garden of Eden specifically, is eat this and you will be like God. So equality with God as something to grasp hold of and to take. Philippians 2, 6 to 11 says this, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Some translations say something to be grasped. But instead, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Equality with God is not the kind of life that God has desired for you. But Jesus came to serve. And the life of a servant is the kind of life that we are called to. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. No matter what happens in life, if you are following God, he is faithful. But it doesn't always mean that good things are going to happen. But when he was obedient to death, even death on a cross, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess or acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God 
the Father. People in the Tower of Babel sought to only exalt themselves, only glorify themselves, only put themselves first and above everything else. Jesus sought to glorify the Father, to put the Father above everything, to glorify him, to put him at the top of absolutely everything. Why? Because that is the purpose of life, to have a relationship with the Father. So when Jesus came to demonstrate what kind of life you were meant to have, he came to put you in relationship with the Father. That's why it says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then very next thing, no one comes to the Father except through me. That is the point. That is the purpose. You know, Jesus says to his followers just before his arrest, in John 14, 15 to 20, if you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. There's darkness hovering over the waters. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, Zoe, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. It's a world and a life that is built for relationship, and is built for that moment. But where does it start? Right back at the beginning. The beginning of life started with God's Spirit. Jesus has come to put us in relationship with God's Spirit. That is the start of our life with him. There's a story in um, Acts 2, which is titled, The Coming of the Holy Spirit. And it's a really interesting story because of the connection that it makes with some of the concepts we've talked about earlier on. Acts 2, 1 to 12, says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole earth where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it then that each of us hears them in our native languages? Parthians, Medes and Alamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near the Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Jerusalem, Cretans and Arabs. In other words, all of the known world at that time We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked each other, what does this mean? Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. People sought to put themselves above everything, to only look after their own interests, and God divided them into different languages. In Acts, God brings his spirit, puts it in his people, and says, do you know what? Now that you are willing to do things my way, now that you are willing to put my spirit first, now that you are willing to build something that will glorify me, not just your own agenda, now I will bring all of the languages together and unite people. 
because at this time, this life is about uniting people. In the past, your own actions have divided you from other from people around you. But my spirit will unite you with those around you so that you can build and develop something that will glorify me. Later on in this passage, the first person to speak to this crowd of people is Peter. Peter, the disciple that Jesus called the rock and said, on this rock, I will build my church. That first sermon, spirit-filled, building his church was done in an environment and a way where all the languages came together and spoke together in unity and could be clearly understood. The opposite and the reverse of the Tower of Babel. Because God is building something that will truly put us in relationship with the Father, which is how life was designed to be. It's a spirit-filled life. It's a life that you can enjoy in relationship with the Father. We started in the Bible with the Spirit and a tree. Interestingly, if if you're not aware of this, Revelation 22, right at the end of the Bible, finishes with God's Spirit and the tree of life. Except now there's two trees. Revelation 22, 1 to 2 says this. The angel showed me the river of the water of life. Jesus being living water. Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. Flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. It starts with tree of life and man trying to take from God and do things his own way. And it ends with God having given everything to bring man back into relationship with him, with the tree of life. The tree in this context of Zoe, of deep spiritual relationship with the Father. That is the kind of life that Jesus is talking about when he says... I have come that you may have life and life in all its fullness or life in its all abundance or in some translations, life that exceeds your expectations. God wants more for your life than you do. God wants more for your life than you do because he's not limited by the sphere of your imagination or what you can imagine life to be like. He knows what you need. And his desire is to give it to you. But it starts with relationship and it starts with his spirit. So if you've never had a relationship with God before, I want to give you an opportunity this morning. And all I'm going to do is just pray a really simple prayer that you can follow along with. And then you can come and talk to somebody at the end who will pray with you. So we'll just do that now. If you want to accept Jesus into your life, if you want a life of relationship with God, if you want a life that is full of abundance, then just pray this with me now. Jesus, I thank you for your life. And I thank you that you came to give me mine. Jesus, will you come into my life, change me, take away the things that are wrong, and give me the things of you. 
Now, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, I want you to do something for me. And that's just come and chat to somebody over on this side. Okay, there'll be a couple of people here who will pray with you and just talk through next steps, shall we say. But if you've been a Christian for a long time, or if you didn't pray that prayer, and you want some more of this abundant life that God has for you, that opportunity is there for you as well. There are guys here who are ready to pray with you, for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit, for you to receive something from God this morning. So if you're tired, if you're weary, if you're struggling, if you're angry, if you've got other things going on and you just think, do you know what, this isn't the way that life is meant to be. Come. And we'll pray. And allow God's Spirit to start some new life in you enjoy life but it starts with the father and it starts with his spirit can I pray with you very quickly father I thank you for this morning God and I thank you for your life God I thank you that you came to give us more than we expected and more than we bargained for father I pray that for everybody here that this week we will experience some more of your life of newness, of abundance, of joy, of peace. And Jesus, I thank you that you are faithful regardless of what is going on in each of our lives. Have a great rest of your summer. Enjoy life.